Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Raphath, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabath, Rama, and Septeka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadon. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pothrasim, Kozluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpaxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gaither, and Mash. Arpaxed fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazar Mavath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nation spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of your living word. And we pray that through your living word this morning, as we have already sung, you would give us your living hope. Father, it's been another crazy week in our world with a lot of sadness I pray that you would meet us truly with the hope of your gospel by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, thank you that you've come into this world to reckon with sin, 
to take on evil and to conquer death. Father, would we find hope and joy in the life of Jesus broken into the world now as he was broken for us. Do a good work now, we pray, from this biblical genealogy as we seek to learn from you in these spaces. Illumine your word to us for your glory, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Here's a little inside baseball for you about pastor's talk. I think I mentioned last week during announcements that a week and a half ago now, there was an all-pastors retreat for the Liberty Communion of Churches. We had a really great time going to my parents' place in western Pennsylvania, just about an hour north of Pittsburgh. And one of the things that we did was a Wednesday afternoon to Friday morning retreat. We had each day a worship and prayer session, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and then Friday morning before we broke. In those worship and prayer sessions, there was a liturgy constructed around one theme each on those successive three sessions. Theme of the first was lament. The theme of the second was remembrance. And the theme of the last was hope. And so we walked through those different rhythms on those successive days. And by far, of those three themes, the one by which conversation was generated most quickly was lament. We didn't have to pull any teeth among the pastors in the room to say, hey, does anybody have anything that they've been bummed out about or sad about over the past couple of years? Has anything hard potentially happened to you that we can name before each other and before the Lord by way of lament? Like I said, it wasn't pulling teeth. It was one at a time, please. We've got to keep this orderly. There was so much pain. So many things to share, and share we did. There were a lot of stories and a lot of tears with this specific group of pastors. And here were a couple of motifs that came from that time of lament. Pastors said, people are so angry right now. And then also, people may be more hopeless than we have ever experienced before. Both of those things. People are so angry. Inside church, around church, outside church, and our nation in general. And the pastors would talk about, we talk a lot about love, about how we need to love God and love people, how we need to love the scriptures and pursue the obedience of the faith. But it seems like what really gets us going right now is our enemies however we perceive them. That's what animates us. That's what gets the blood flowing. Love God, love people, love the obedience of the faith. Eh. But get me revved up about who's against me. I am already there. And hence the tribalism and the polarization that we spend a lot of time over the past year talking about. But then the hopelessness also. The pastor said, we're just beaten down not just in the pulpit, but also in the pews. Life seems really tough. And for most of us, if we'd ask the question, this is true of older people, younger people, students, youth. Do we think life is going to get better? Or is it going to get worse? And I think most of us would say, things are going to get worse. 
they're not going to get better. And so there is this understandable and underlying cynicism underneath all things. And another pastor said, we're so fragile. The comment was, I'm discouraged because it feels like 10 years of Christian discipleship and spiritual formation can be undone by 10 minutes of Twitter. And it just all goes out the window. And so there's a soldiering on from a place of wounded fatigue. How do we keep ministering in a climate like this? And why are we doing this again in the first place? And so pastoral resignation levels are at an all-time high as well. Both people leaving their pastoral posts, but then also leaving the pastorate altogether, finding new lines of work. But thus ends the sob story of pastors having issues. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Or maybe I should say, let's cry for each other because we're all in the same boat, right? Life is hard for everybody right now, whether professionally in our vocations or if we're looking for a job or within our families or within ourselves or within our communities. Life just doesn't feel that great right now. Kind of like this. A story about my daughter, Jessie, when she was around four years old. She's in middle school now. I did get her permission to share this story. Shortly after Clan Anger moved back to this area to plant this church, Liberty Collingswood, we took a day trip to the Jersey Shore. Great day. I love the ocean. I am a champion beach sitter. You've never seen somebody sit on the beach so hard as I do. It is awesome. So great day of beach. I don't like going into the water. That's the flip side. I'm a beach sitter, not a beach wader or swimmer. It's fine. In fact, it's awesome. We were driving back. And Jesse, maybe she was three or four years old, a little bit tired, dozing off a little bit, but then also a little bit hungry, a little bit car sick, the whole thing. We parked and... For those of you that don't have kids, you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, the amount of exponential expansion of beach paraphernalia required to get a family to the beach is unbelievable. You need like a U-Haul to get all of the family equipment to go to the beach, not even for an overnight, just for a day. So we got back and parked, and we were unloading, and it's like, okay, kids, everybody time to get out of the car, grab what you can. But Jessie just stayed in her car seat, said, no, I'm tired. And I was like, come on, Jessie, you've got to do this. And so I took a load in, came back, come on, Jessie, time to get out of the car seat. No, I'm tired. I can't do it. Jessie, daddy really needs you to get out of the car seat right now. Daddy has taken multiple loads of stuff, including yours, in from the van to our basement right now. Daddy needs you to use your little legs right now. Take another load. And Jesse's starting to whimper a little bit. Jesse, I need you to walk. Jesse, it's dusk right now. You know how daddy hates mosquitoes. Daddy's getting bit. Need you to walk. And she snuffled and, okay. So she unbuckled her car seat, dripped out of the car seat onto the ledge of the minivan, dripped from the ledge of the minivan into our driveway, 
took one step, stumbled, and sat down in a puddle of tears. And she said, Daddy, through the tears, everything is hard for me right now. Everything is hard for me. And I'm not so hard-hearted that I didn't put down all of the stuff, take her in my arms, and carry her inside. Can we admit that as a culture, we have many moments where we're just saying everything is hard for us right now. And the punches keep on coming. Right on the heels of grieving the shooting in Buffalo, a racially motivated rampage, we have this past week what happened in Texas. And we're hurting again. We're grieving again. We're panicked again. We're anxious again. We're confused again. We're angry again. And the question isn't if the next horrible thing is going to come down the pike, but when. So what do we do? And then also there's the Christians, and I self-identify as one of them. Sometimes the Christians make it worse. Now, multiple things can be true. Sometimes I think Christians are unfairly maligned. Sometimes it's one of those things where, hey, we're not trying to pick fights with anybody. We're just trying to be faithful for the scriptures, and chips will fall where they may around that. But then other times, Christians do things that they shouldn't do and make it worse and add to the mess and add to the confusion. Jesus make a way forward for us when everything is hard for us. And so we'll wrestle with that in two parts from here, from Genesis chapter 10. I want to talk about one world and a good world. And in both of those sections, respectively, we're going to look at what stands out from this biblical genealogy in relation to the rest of the ancient Near East. That's the one world part. And then the good world part, what stands out about this genealogy from the flow of Genesis itself. And so, yes, one world, Genesis chapter 10, biblical genealogy. And I'm excited to be able to tell you this morning that this is a personal record for me. Within this ministry year, starting in September, and there's another biblical genealogy coming up in two weeks. You're excited for that, I know. Biblical genealogy, just a long list of names, like you heard me read. In the course of one ministry year, I will have done four biblical genealogies in that one year. Not going to say it's not challenging, but it makes me feel a little bit like Nicolas Cage in The Rock. 1996, the movie, it won an Oscar for Best Picture that year. There's a scene towards the end of The Rock where Nicolas Cage says, everything's blowing up all around him, he's got to save the day. I love pressure, I eat it for breakfast. That's what I feel like when in the old sermon schedule. A biblical genealogy comes up, love it, and I don't like skipping through them at this point because this is one of the ways in which we take the scriptures seriously as God's word. If all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that includes a passage like this. So Holy Spirit, what can we learn from what's on the surface a passage that doesn't seem to have a lot of grappling points to get into it. And the majority of commentators will say when you go through a biblical genealogy, the purpose is not necessarily to go name by name, place by place, 
and just click on a little information here and a little information there. That's generally not the best way, I think, to read a genealogy. So I'm not going to go Jokton, Jokton, anyone, anyone, something D-O-O -O, economics, Jokton. I'm not going to do that. But instead, as we've done with biblical genealogies before, look at what stands out. Look at the seams. And we're going to look at what stands out here. We did this at the very beginning of the book of Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. How does this Genesis story of creation compare with other creation stories in the ancient Near East? Let's do a similar thing here. In Genesis chapter 10 that I just read, we have what Jewish and Christian scholars and interpreters have called a table of nations. It's a table of nations. This is after the flood. You remember Kyle Connect last week concluding the, the cycle of flood stories for us. The flood has happened, and this comes after. Verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And so after that, we have from these three sons, people, groups, and nations filling the earth. And it's interesting, if you do go through with the finer tooth comb, Many of these nations, these people groups, are, are known by biblical archaeology and otherwise. And especially given the time frame of this book, the geographic scope that's described here is stunningly large. This area described goes all the way north to the Caucasus Mountains, east to the Persia of modern times, south into Africa, Ethiopia, West, at least as far as Crete, and some scholars say all the way out to Spain, this is a verbal map of the known world. The nations are being populated. It's a table of nations for us here. And what do we learn as we compare the table of nations as we find it here in the book of Genesis with other tables of nations, what do we find from other ancient documents, whether ancient Near East or beyond, that have these tables of nations too? What do we see? This is where it gets interesting. Nothing. Because do you know how many other ancient peoples had an equivalent list of all of the nations around the world? Absolutely zero. This is the only one that you find. With those other ancient cultures, you have a table of nation, meaning that one, where there's a genealogy of mostly rulers and the elites from this nation going all the way down. No attention's paid to other nations and other people groups. This is the only one that matters. So actually, interpreters will say, there is a statement being made where this is a book that's not only about one people, this is a book a story that's about one world. There is one world. There is one God who is ruler and judge over one world. And there is a single humanity united all together by virtue of the fact that everybody is created in the image of God. And such a table, such a statement is striking by the absence of such a thing everywhere else. And it's kind of an interesting balance. Israel will find in Genesis going into Exodus is God's chosen nation. The showcase people where God says in those ancient times, I'm going to have a relationship with you. 
I'm going to reveal to you my mercy and my justice and my judgment and my holiness and my grace, all of that stuff, so that you can be a showcase people before the entire world of who the living Lord, the one true God, is. All of those motifs fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected. But there's a balance here. In Genesis chapter 10, it's not the uniqueness of Israel that's stressed, but it's the commonality. We are all one world and one people. Israel is chosen, but it's not special. In fact, at the beginning stages of the book of Deuteronomy later on, Moses tells ancient Israel, hey, you know what? It's not because you're better or bigger than anybody else that God has chosen you. He did it because he wanted to choose you. That's how God works. And to show his grace to the nations through you. That's God. And so, commonality among human beings is not to be found primarily in similar language or similar culture or similar geography, but the same image, the same imago dei shared by everybody. One world, one God, one humanity united in the image of God. Now you might think, okay, church on a Sunday morning, I hear you, not a shattering, that's kind of boring. I would say maybe, but it's also bracing and vital for a moment such as this. If we take a pulse on the state of the union right now, there's a lot of people that don't feel very united with other people. Isn't that true? I read an article recently by a writer and thinker named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, talking about tribalization, polarization, social media, fractionalization and fractionalism and, and all the rest. He quoted something from James Madison, the Federalist Papers, way back to the founding of our country. I wasn't familiar with this quote from Madison, apart from this article. I've seen Hamilton. I know that Hamilton wrote most of it, but he didn't write all of it. And here's James Madison. Long time ago, talking about America, people are much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than cooperate for their common good. That's interesting. And he says that Americans in this nascent country of ours, we are prone to factions. Where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. In modern English, Madison is saying, as I look at our new nation, even when it's not a big People are going to be prone to divide and fight against one another and not get along. Well, the good news is that's gotten a lot better over the past couple hundred years. Actually, not true. And if anything, it's accelerated in the other direction through rhetoric. And I'm not against people using social media, but I am saying eyes wide open about what the algorithms are doing to us. Another author has put it this way. Watch a video on YouTube or like a post on Facebook or Twitter, and you will be offered another and another and another. Behind the suggested offerings is a logic of emotional response. The technology is seeking your trigger. Whatever draws you deeper and keeps you clicking. Nothing quite does it like outrage, moral outrage. Those we know we are right to hate. Those we love because we are united together against those we know we are right to hate. It's algorithmically built into our systems that the nastier, 
the less nuanced, the louder, the angrier takes you'll see. If you click a little bit, you'll get a lot in that same direction. It's built in to social discourse at this point, and it's warping us. Now, am I saying we shouldn't have conversations about stuff? Absolutely, we should. And I wish we could have more nuanced conversations as it comes to civic dialogue. I would love, with Supreme Court and abortion coming back in the news, for people to be able to have conversations about those things, but we're too busy shouting at each other, for example. Should you have opinions about policy? Yes. But understand when you disagree across the aisle, you are disagreeing with fellow image bearers from God. They're not your sworn enemies. And it's a lie of various strands of culture that is telling you everybody is against you all the time and wants to take everything. That's a zero-sum game that produces the factions that we're dealing with right now. And if you're somebody that's still figuring out Christianity and spiritual realities, let's dialogue here. If the image of God will not be the common uniter among people, then what? What's going to bring us together? And I haven't seen this from any other author, but here's my take as I look at the hardcore secularities of both the right and the left. What am I hearing from them about this is what's going to unite people? And this is the answer that I see. Alignment. You know what's going to unite you with me? If you agree with me. That's the hope. If we keep having this great civic dialogue that's so nuanced and careful all the time, everybody eventually is going to agree with everybody else. That's the hope. Or the secondary strategy after that is taking the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them, and putting it on its head, if you can't join us, we're going to beat you. And it's just conquest all the way down. To me, those types of strategies it's just going to produce more factions. It's just going to produce more fissures. And again, that's what we're seeing right now. We need the image of God truly to be our common denominator or else we are sunk. And that common denominator is what we see in Genesis 10, unity across all of these geographies, all of these languages, all of these cultures and friends, we need Jesus for this to happen. A pastor in Oregon that I've been quoting fairly frequently recently, John Moat Comer, said this, talking about his own people in a very politically divided church. People import a religious-like devotion and frenzy onto politics. A growing number of people are more loyal to their ideology or political party than they are to Jesus and his teachings. I feel this tug at my own heart, and we must resist it. It takes us into territory outside of the kingdom of God and demagnetizes our moral compass, pointing us in a direction this, that does not lead to life and peace. Followers of Jesus need to come back to the reality that baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. Contempt has zero place in the heart of those who claim apprenticeship under Jesus. And the litmus test of our faith is the degree to which we love our enemy. Love your enemy. And pray for those that persecute you. That's what Jesus said. And speaking of Jesus, Jesus does approach this passage here in Genesis chapter 10. How many nations? I'm sure all of you were counting along as I read through all of these different nations. It's about 70, give or take. 
And what do you know? In Luke chapter 10, Luke, one of the four narrated accounts of Jesus' gospels, Jesus sends out, depending on the textual variant, the 70 or the 72. So you may know that Jesus kind of worked concentrically. He had Peter, maybe as his number one. Then he had Peter and then the brothers, James and John, as his big three. Then he had the 12. But working out of that, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has this wider group of disciples, 70, and he sends them out. And New Testament interpreters say you have an echo there of the table of nations. Here is the new 70. I am sending you out to be a new humanity across the face of the earth. The beginning of Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 70 or 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, actually a Noah echo there as well, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And as you go to all of these places, preach peace. Whatever house you enter, verse 5, first say, peace be to this house. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. A new humanity saying this is how we act peacefully in the world under the authority and kingship of Jesus. And there's going to be divisions. Jesus says in Luke 10, you can read it, not everybody's going to receive you. Just shake the dust off your feet and keep going. Don't burn them to the ground. Just keep going. Be a person of peace. We need this Jesus. We also need this Jesus because of sin. Around us, in our culture, and inside of us. Kyle Connect last week was talking about from the end of the Noah narrative, sin is real and there are grave consequences for disobeying a holy God. And we need, just, need Jesus for his grace as well. So if that's one world, let's also now talk about a good world. I would encourage you later today, you have time, it's a Memorial Day weekend, look in totality about Genesis, at Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. This is all of Genesis 10 that I read. Also, Genesis 11, it's kind of an interesting sequence that have pinged people's radars. You have the table of nations, Genesis 10. Then you have beginning of Genesis 11. We're going to talk about this next week on International Partnership Sunday. I'm really looking forward to that. I talked about it last week during announcements. Tower of Babel, when there used to be just one language and one culture, but then all of that was scattered into different language and people groups. And then you have, after that, end of Genesis chapter 11, Picking up on the descendants of Peleg, verse 25. The two brothers, verse 25, Joktan and Peleg. Genesis 10 just finishes out Joktan coming from Shem to Peleg and keep on there. The question is, thanks for bearing with me as I explain some of that context, shouldn't Babel come before the table of nations? If that's the starting point of different languages, different cultures, why do we get all of these people groups going to the ends of the earth before we get the originating event, Babel. And here's what people say. As we look at the context and flow of Genesis, in Genesis 11, there is a narrative flow decision that's been made for some potentially dischronalization where you have Babel and then Peleg's genealogy, which ends in Abraham. Discouraging, dis discombobulating, all of these nations are scattered. But then you have a through line to Abraham, who is the father of many. And God tells Abraham soon after that, in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So you have the discouragement of Babel paired instantaneously with the hope of blessing to the nations again through God's chosen line. There's a nice flow there. 
And then there's also a nice flow into the table of nations from what's come before in the flood narrative. Again, Kyle wrapped all of this up last week, but where we're coming out of the flood narrative, there's a flood, it's a big deal. Then God says, we are going to repopulate the earth again. I promise never to flood the world like this ever again. I am committed to life. Be fruitful and multiply. Noah, your family, it's going to be great. Fill the earth. But then there's this weird sin and malfeasance with Noah and Ham. And then Canaan is cursed. It looks like it's all going downhill again so fast. So maybe an ancient reader would say, are we off track again so soon? Are things just going to fall apart and are things just going to get worse forever? This table of nations is put here to say, God is at work to still build a good world. Beginning of the chapter, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Still after the flood, God is building, or the end of the chapter. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations, spread abroad on the earth after the flood, God is still building. God is still blessing. It's still a good world. God's going to reckon with evil. And all of the evil of human beings is not going to get God's good world off track. Therefore... No matter the backstory, no matter the headlines, we can have hope. So again, Sunday morning, preacher talking about having hope for the world. Not going to make any headlines, maybe kind of boring, but I would say it's actually bracing and vital for a moment like this because we are so hopeless, right? We're so beat up. We're so beat down. Do we have any hope for our world at all? And there are different layers to this. One of them is all of the tragedies that keep happening. I mentioned already the shooting in Texas. It's horrible. And it's not just you, but there are plenty of studies out there now saying that the rate of crisis in our world, nobody knows why, there are different theories about it, is actually accelerating. Here's something sad that I wrote about in my blog this past week. 2004 called, and I'm like, I got your blog for you. It's awesome. I actually really do like my blog. You should read it. Talking about how discussion in pastoral circles right now is that we need to build into Christian discipleship how to care for people when there are crises all around them. Didn't have to used to do that. Discipleship used to be, it's how you love God. It's how you read the Bible. This is how you practice Christian obedience. This is how you handle money. This is how you handle family. This is how you handle sex. This is... Some just like basics for you and yours to do individually. But what do we do with all this stuff over it? Because pastors are scrambling seemingly all the time to figure out how to care for people that aren't directly affected by what's harming them directly. But we're still feeling it. And we actually have to start to be proactive. And how do we just build that into building up Christian rhythms? And that's a tragedy. I'm thinking about how to do that, but I hate it. I lament the fact that our world is so messed up that we have to give pastoral energy to that. There are different layers and wheels within wheels. Another one of them says, well, Jim, you are a pastor that's in majority culture, and 
okay, so finally, like, majority culture churches are having to figure out how to disciple people through trauma that they don't directly experience. Welcome to what subdominant cultures and churches have been having to deal with for a long time. And that's why I'm listening and tuning in to all of the good discipleship that has occurred in subdominant culture churches that have had to work through these things already. I deeply appreciate that and want to grow, but that's not all. Another layer is the hyperconnectivity of everything where there's even more. The question has been asked, if the murder of George Floyd hadn't been caught on smartphone, would the response have been the same? Does it make it any less horrible? Probably not. And think about how we process war and conflict generationally. Civil War, the first photos of war. Before that, no photography, right? World War II, you see a little bit about the war in newsreels. Vietnam, you get it on your nightly news. Now, we see as deep as you have the stomach to go with something like Ukraine, all of the carnage instantly everywhere. And you see the photos of teen and preteen boys and girls ravaged and then also taking up machine guns and fighting. Because of the hyper-globalization and connectivity, which is here to stay either way, we feel things more than we ever have before. And so when those things happen, we just get cynical. And there are other layers. Here's something that unites the right and the left. Everybody thinks the economy's in the tank and it's not gonna get better. We agree. There are different theories as to why, but as far as economic hope, we just don't have a lot of it right now at all. We think things are going to get worse. Emily was telling me recently about a couple of studies about the death of the Simpsons. The Simpsons cartoon is not going to die. It's going to outlive all of us, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I, I enjoy some, some sarcastic comedy sometimes. But that whole idea of, and again, right and left will have different diagnoses of this. Homer Simpson never went to college, but found steady job didn't have to worry too much about money, and was able to have a one income, more or less, providing for an entire family. There's a shrinking middle class. It's just going. Exploitations of various kinds still occurring, which is actually named in this chapter, Nimrod versus eight and nine, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Most commentators will say, there's some difference of opinion about this, that this is a negative naming and reference to Nimrod, not positive, in large part because he's the forerunner of Babylon, one of the prototypical enemies of Israel and a huge oppressive nation. So we see oppression and exploitation here. We have cultural memory of that. When Bugs Bunny calls Elmer Fudd a Nimrod, it's not a compliment. It's negative, right? Exploitation and undue use of power is built into our stories as well. And so understandably, we lose hope and we become cynical all the way around. That's the last quote for you. David Foster Wallace, a writer that I like, not a person of faith, but had his pulse on a lot of faith-adjacent perspectives on the world, talked about how we're just becoming more and more cynical because we're hopeless and we don't know what else to do. It's our defense. What's been passed down from the postmodern heyday is sarcasm, cynicism, a manic ennui, Suspicion of all authority, suspicion of all constraints on conduct, and a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness. 
instead of an ambition not just to diagnose and ridicule, but to redeem. What he's saying there is nobody's talking about redemptive arcs. All we want to do is ridicule and put down. You've got to understand that this stuff has permeated culture. It's become our language. Irony has become our environment. I understand if you're here this morning or watching online and your hope is low. We see the headlines, but we also ask, kind of like the psalm, we lift our eyes to the headlines from where does our hope come? Our hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And at the end of the day, that's all we got. And at the end of the day, that's all we need. That's enough. We have the Lord who has promised that this world is not just going to get worse forever, but there will be a new heavens and new earth so that the final trajectory of all of this mess is up and to the right. And we need Jesus for that because Jesus is the one that in the middle of history has reckoned with the sin and evil all around us and in us, including ourselves. And Jesus crucified and resurrected as he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross as he rose again to conquer not only the debt for our sin, but also death itself and all of the brokenness and sin and evil in the world to say there will come a day when all of this mess will end because I've taken all of that junk and curse upon myself. The cross says, let's begin with you and work out from there. Here's forgiveness eternally so that you escape the judgment of God. Here's life and forgiveness and renovation and hope. I've been thinking about with all of the mess of our world, and this is where I'm going to end, the book of Revelation. That for all of the craziness, that's the last book of the Bible, John's vision of Jesus' victory. However it plays out, couple things right at the end. One of the last things we hear from Jesus in all of the Bible is a vision of his coming again. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. And the Bible virtually ends with, amen, come Lord Jesus. And so we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.